This episode of the American Birding Podcast is sponsored by our friends at Beautyo Books. Remember that ABA members get a discount on all orders from Beautyo Books. You can check them out at beautyobooks.com. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. Have you heard about the feel storch? They got a little bit of notoriety when the topic was featured by the Twitter account Depths of Wikipedia. But the field storch occupy a very important place in the history of bird science, particularly as humans began to learn about bird migration. I should explain what a field storch is. This is a German word meaning arrow stork, and it is a white stork that was injured while wintering in sub-Saharan Africa and returned in the spring to Europe with the projectile that it was injured by stuck somewhere in its body. There are about 25 of these birds that have been documented, the most famous of which was a white stork with a 30-inch spear from Central Africa embedded in its neck that was found in 1822 near Rostock, Germany. It is now in the collection of the University of Rostock. Until relatively recently in human history, people didn't really understand bird migration, and they struggled to explain why certain species just disappeared in the spring and fall. As you might expect, humans being an imaginative species, uh, they came up with all sorts of wild explanations for these disappearances, including the belief that birds flew to the moon or that birds hibernated in the mud at the bottom of rivers and lakes, which I don't know, sounds wild, but you imagine a large flock of staging swallows swirling over a body of water and maybe you get it. People also believed that birds turned into mice or frogs or fish or one species turned into another. For instance, a summer resident common red start might turn into a winter resident European robin, which is not far off from something like American goldfinch turning into a completely different looking bird from summer to winter, if you think about it. I sound like I'm defending these old bad theories. I'm not really. The idea that birds turn into fish or flew to the moon is straight bonkers. But it's wild that it wasn't until these storks ended up in Germany with African spears stuck in them that people began to really take seriously that birds were moving around in incredible and seemingly impossible ways. And this is, this is an idea that still resonates with bird-minded people like me, and presumably you, because why else would you be listening to this podcast? After all, a person considering the Rostock Fieldstorch and marveling at the undeniable evidence that this bird was in Africa not all that long ago is probably not all that different from me at my computer, staring at the latest GPS track of a bar-tailed Godwit crossing the Pacific Ocean, aside from the fact that the little backpack is less onerous for the bird than a spear in the neck, or so I assume. But we're all still amazed by birds doing seemingly impossible things as we were back then, and maybe to a resident of Germany in the 19th century, a bird traveling to Africa and back in one year, a seemingly unbelievable journey, is as shocking as a bird turning into a fish. So that's the story of the Fields, Georgia. On the show this week, I'm delighted to welcome ABA Award recipient and Delaware birder, Holly Merker. She recently received the ABA's Award for Education and Conservation for her work with young birders, among other things. She joins me to talk ornotherapy, young birders, and birding ethics, and how all those things come together, all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first week of February 2023. A quick correction to make regarding a bird I reported last week, the American black duck from Cameron Parish, Louisiana, was not a state first. While the species is certainly rare in the state, there are a number of historical records, including specimens at the Louisiana State University Museum. 
One new first to report from the period, though, a Brewer's Sparrow in Quispamsis, New Brunswick, represents a provincial first of this Western Sparrow. The consensus seems to be that this is more likely the highly migratory and more northerly breeding tavernary subspecies, frequently called the Timberline Sparrow and considered by some authorities to be a good candidate for for a separate species. Most Eastern records of Brewer's Sparrow represented by this subspecies rather than the nominant one. Also of note, the stellar sea eagle that has spent a year and a half now in eastern North America was once again seen in Maine at Flying Point Reserve northeast of Portland. There's reason to believe it will hang out for some time or even head south again as it did last winter. Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook or ABA community. Young birders who have participated in the ABA's Camp Avocet, now Camp Delaware, or perhaps Maine's well-known Hog Island Audubon Camp are no doubt familiar with Holly Merker. That only scratches the surface of her contributions to the birding world. She's also a former member of the ABA's Recording Standards and Ethics Committee, one of the authors of the well-received and very timely Ornotherapy, and this year, the recipient of the ABA's Award for Conservation and Education, formerly the Betty Peterson Award. Uh, she joins me today to talk about all of that stuff. Welcome, Holly. Congratulations on the award. It's well-deserved. Oh, well, gosh, thank you so much, Nate. I really appreciate um, the invitation to be here today. Yeah. And I'm I'm super honored to have been awarded and follow in the footsteps of some of the previous um, awardees of this same Education and Conservation Award uh, from the ABA. And I just uh, want to say congratulations to you, too, oh, on thanks. your award yeah, as well. Yeah, I, I got one as well. I, I haven't <laughs> talked about it here, but yeah, no, thank you. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, that conservation and education, it's such an important part of the way that not only the ABA interacts with the birding world, but also, you know, I feel like the birding world just in general, like our whole, our mm-hmm. whole ethos of birding is about education and sharing information and hopefully using that to inform conservation decisions to protect the birds that we all care about and we all enjoy. And yeah, it just it just makes sense. It feels like it's such a such a bedrock part of the birding world of the birding community in North America and all around the world. Mm, I agree a hundred percent, and that's that's what it's all about. Birds bringing us together mm-hmm. as our common ground and being able to connect each other through this, you know, education and these conservation practices. Um, we're all just uh, working together in that capacity to make the world a better place, not just for the birds, but also for us as well. Yeah, for sure. Let's start by talking a little about ornotherapy. Um, what is it and why does it resonate with you? Yeah, so ornotherapy, I mean, that word um, is is probably brings to mind a lot of different things to different mm-hmm. people. And that's what's it's really wonderful. Too. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's it's really wonderful. And actually, this word is not something that I made up or that of mm-hmm. my co-authors for the book Ornotherapy for Your Mind, Body, and Soul. But actually, I could first find it referenced in print in 1979 in the oh, British wow. Journal of Medicine by a doctor in London, Dr. A.F. Cox, who reported in the journal that bird watching was as effective as any tranquilizer that he could <laughs> prescribe, but with but safer than yeah, any no drug um, without the side effects. And, it, and it's so true because I think a lot of your uh, listeners can relate to 
the feeling we get um, mm-hmm. when we're watching birds and how it takes it gives us the opportunity to take the edge off of maybe our anxiety, our stress. I mean, frankly, I think a lot of us seek out birding and watching birds for the therapeutic value of it. Yeah, no doubt. And and so for me, it has really resonated throughout my life. At some points in my life, I didn't even recognize it for that, you know, for the therapeutic value uh, when I was a kid, you know, and also, um, you know, throughout my experience, uh, you know, I've been able to use birds um, as uh, companions in my wellness journey. Um, I'm a cancer survivor. And Mm -hmm. during that time, um, I was able to use like birds and birding as part of what grounded me, what gave me peace, what allowed me to be who I am. You know, birds are not judgmental of how we look and how we feel. Um, And so I found it to be incredibly rewarding to have these companions in my own personal wellness journey. And so I hope to share that message. Um, And, you know, this practice of being able to use birds to center and ground us, bring us into a more of a present moment thinking Mm -hmm. so that we can Uh, benefit from what we now know with all the mounting research that birds can provide to our overall well-being. Yeah, it's interesting that you you point out that you didn't always think of it in those terms. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm exactly the same way. You know, I've always sort of felt that sort of calmness, you know, awareness of the present uh, when I'm birding, but I, I haven't always thought about it, um, you know, in those terms, in those kind of specific terms, wellness terms. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like the last few years have really made this sort of aspect of birding um, very appealing to people. And I, and I know that you've seen as much as I have this sort of, sort of seeming growth of the birding community in these last few pandemic years. Have you found an audience that is really receptive to that in the last few years more than perhaps you had in the past? Oh, my goodness. Yes. I mean, <laughs> it's it's amazing um, how this resonates so well with so many of us. And like you said, on the heels of what we've all been through collectively, yeah. globally, um, so many people have had the opportunity because they've been forced to slow down mm-hmm. and take notice of birds. You know, I see recognizing birds as good for us in our personal well-being as a conservation initiative. It's just wrapped in a different package, really. I mean, the more people that recognize that birds and the natural world are good for us, the more people who are going to want to take care of you know, nature and birds and the habitats we share. So, but yeah, absolutely. So many people have um, embraced this, have have started to recognize what birds really mean to them and this Mm -hmm. practice of birding and and how how they can use this and kind of harness the wellness benefits by being more intentional, by Mm -hmm. using birding as part of our self-care, you know, not just good sleep, diet and exercise, but also embracing the time when we're out birding as part of our wellness regimen. And, you know, I don't know about for you, Nate, but, you know, Mm -hmm. for a long time, birding was my guilty pleasure. I was kind of embarrassed to admit it to my friends who were birders. I think about myself as a young birder. It's like, (laughs) you don't really want to say, oh, I'm a bird watcher. Yeah, again, kind of have that, that, that connotation is, I I don't know, the, not only the, the old lady in the kind of the khaki, khaki uniform, but also like people think of folks walking around with binoculars is kind of subversive or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's nice to be able to come out and be like, hey, no, I'm a birder. This is what it means. This is what yeah. I do. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And to know that it's actually biophysically doing something for us. I mean, you know, there's so much uh, research now supporting that when we're outdoors, we're spending time actively immersing ourselves in the natural world. This changes our biochemistry. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of focus now, particularly on bird song and what it can do for us, how it promotes our cognitive abilities, our ability to retain information longer if we're listening to bird song in the background Mm -hmm. or recall that information quicker and how it provides us this opportunity to uh, tune in and and feel better, like wellness yeah. benefits are boosted just by listening to birdsong, you know? I, I also really like the idea that it kind of opens up birding as a practice to a lot of different people, you know, for yes. a very long time, uh, birding and, and the ABA in particular had a very sort of competitive sporting angle to birding. I mean, that was sort of, that, for better or for worse, that was part of the, it's part of the ABA's history and the growth of the mm-hmm. ABA. People were looking for that and people are still looking for that. We can still provide that. But I really like this idea that this is a much broader net, you know, where to capture a lot of people who perhaps didn't see themselves as birders in the, uh, you know, chasing, twitching, competitive sort of sense, but enjoy birds, enjoy nature, enjoy identifying birds spending time outside, putting their brain to work, trying to identify stuff. All this is birding and all this Mm -hmm. stuff has really has value that perhaps has been underappreciated in the past. And it's really nice to see it. I don't know, people finding ways to all the different ways to bird that are, that are valid and valuable to themselves and the community. Absolutely. And I find that a lot of people who have a hard time recognizing themselves as birders, you know, people that I would consider birders, but they say to me, you know, oh, I just like to watch birds, but I'm not really a birder. And it's like, well, actually, you you know, you are. (laughs) Right, exactly. And so um, when we when we take this approach, and we take some of the focus off of the more, you know, competitive side, although that's really rewarding for a lot of people, Uh, you know, to some extent. Yeah, (laughs) right. Exactly. Um, when the intention is just to slow down and mm-hmm. maybe not, maybe identification of birds is not the primary focus. Mm-hmm. It's just watching, getting to know the birds and enjoying those moments, finding yourselves in, in yourself in a moment of awe. Mm-hmm. You know, that in itself is powerful. And I think once we start to start thinking about birding in that way, what I would call mindful birding, mm-hmm. then, you know, I think it opens the door to a lot more opportunity for people to come into the fold and embrace yeah. themselves as birders. Yeah, for sure. And I think even people who are would call themselves, you know, competitive twitcher birders chasers whatever someone asks you when do you go birding and it's like well well i'm never not birding i'm always aware of the stuff around me tweaking that definition of what birding is to something that's more just awareness mm-hmm. as opposed to listing i mean it's all included in their part and parcel but um i, I really love this broader definition and it, how it brings more people in rather than sort of excluding people mm-hmm. has your work with young birders highlighted this perspective or is that something a little bit different. I, I guess I ask because um, young birders frequently, not always, seem very taken with sort of the competitive side of birding. Like, um, or at least it was the case when I was a young birder. I suppose young birders run the gamut these days. But have you seen sort of more of a, uh, I don't know, a wide ranging way of being a birder among younger, the younger generation as well? You know, I really have in the last couple of years, um, and that's been really exciting. And mm-hmm. I think that young birders are so open-minded, mm-hmm. and their idea of what it is to be a birder is not as kind of compact as some of um, yeah, other generations, right? Yeah. Um, and so they are much more inclusive and 
subverting styles and mm-hmm. understanding each other um, and appreciating that while somebody um, in the group might um, be really excited to rack up as many lifers as they can during our camp experiences, somebody else is just really super excited to uh, learn a lot about bird behavior and mm-hmm. maybe um, spend more time sketching birds, or perhaps they're uh, interested in taking photos of birds and using that lens to capture the birds in a different way. So it's been really fantastic to see um, the the young birder community kind of grow and thrive and um, increasing demographics of birders, uh, you know, young birders um, come from all over um, and from all different backgrounds. And that's what's really great about these ABA camps um, mm-hmm. is just having that space for young people to connect with other like-minded young people and share their passion to learn from each other, to share ideas, to laugh and have so much fun. I feel grateful and honored to have had this experience and be a part of a team along with uh, Jenny Duberstein and also Lord Gerard to create these um, safe places for safe and comfortable, inclusive places for young birders to connect and spend time together. And they have lasting lifelong friendships that (laughs) come out of these experiences, which has really been a wonderful thing to watch through the years. Yeah. Have you, have you seen a change in the way maybe birding is perceived by, by younger people? I guess I ask, when um when I was a young birder, there were not very many of us. Birding was sort of it. Like that was your identity in a lot of ways. Um, it feels like the the community of young birders these days, these sort of high school, young college birders, are into all sorts of stuff. And birding is just one part of sort of a well-rounded human uh that they are. And and it's like birding is not seen as like a, a sole identity. It's just like one other kind of cool thing that I do. It feels <laughs> like to me. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And I think that's what makes it really um, a a wonderful and rich, diverse group of people, Mm -hmm. young people now. And I think that there is a shift culturally in how birders are being perceived. I mean, I don't know about you, but every week I seem to notice a new commercial on TV that features birding. Like, that is so awesome. And it's it's, it's (laughs) not your stereotypical, like you said, the older lady in khaki vest or whatever. (laughs) We're talking about young, hip people embracing birding. So it's, you know, it's this perception, um, you know, that we have of, of birders is really changed. And mm-hmm. I love that because it, it just brings, again, more of a welcoming, inclusive, like, hey, this is cool to do. It's fun. Mm-hmm. And there are health benefits associated with it as well. Oh, I mean, it's a lifetime activity. It's a thing that you can kind of do um, throughout your entire, entire life. And it, uh, one of the things I love about birding is the fact that when a young birder comes in as maybe a, perhaps a relative novice, uh, a lot of times like their contribution is absolutely as valid and perceived as, as valid and as important as the perception of a, of a birder who's been doing it for decades and decades. Like there, you are immediately contributing to this community in a, in a way that anyone else is just through your observations. I, I, I really, mm-hmm. I really think that's cool. Like it's, it, it's, I don't think of any other walk of life that I'm in where I am, colleagues with 18 year olds and colleagues with 75 year olds like it's 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 fascinating yeah that's a great point nate i i i think that um it's it's really wonderful how 
everybody counts. You know yeah. what I mean? And and we can level the playing field, so to speak, in a lot of ways. I mean, of course, there are so many um, veteran birders that have such insight to teach young birders mm-hmm. or, or newer birders, not just necessarily younger ones, but people yeah. who are new to uh, to this wonderful hobby. But also, you know, that, that these young people can contribute enormous amounts. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's something we try to foster in our young birder camps is this idea that, hey, you can give back to the community. Mm-hmm. You can give back to bird conservation. And that sort of dovetails into um, the Frontiers and Ornithology Symposium, mm-hmm. which is another um, young birder opportunity um, that we had in, I'm one of the co-founders for the mm-hmm. Frontiers and Ornithology Symposium. And that was uh, held in 2019, but we're coming back this year in 2023. But okay. again, to emphasize ways in which people who are interested in birds can make a difference either, you know, in their higher education pursuits or perhaps vocationally or avocationally. So, wow, that's yeah. really neat. Yeah. So what is that? What are those? Um, what does that symposium entail? Is it a, a like a weekend of meetings of, uh, of panel discussions of stuff like that or just community building? Yeah, so um, it is a one-day symposium. Um, This year, it'll be held in November, the first Mm -hmm. weekend in November in uh, northern Delaware, right along the I-95 corridor. Um, And we have... uh, at least last the last time we had it, we had, I think, 17 different speakers. Mm-hmm. We had one keynote wow. speaker and two youth keynote speakers. And during the day, um, young people can choose different um, sessions to attend. And we record the ones they can't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but these are all people who are coming in from different aspects of avian conservation. It's not mm-hmm. so much a focus on how to be a birder, but it's like here I'm a kid that has a passion for uh, birds and ornithology and science. What can I do? Because mm-hmm. maybe maybe I don't want to be a field biologist, mm-hmm. but I'm really good at statistics. You know, so here's ways, you know, we brought in Marshall Iliff from eBird who yeah. talked a lot about, you know, how he had his pathway to get to uh, where he is right now. We had uh, Catherine Hamilton Mm -hmm. talk about how she uses her art as a conservation tool. I noticed that your last week episode, you focused a little bit on the bird strike of the Marsh Harrier. And you talked a little bit about uh, the Smithsonian's um, Center for uh, Bird Strike. Well, we had Jim Watton, who who works in that office, come and talk about the feather DNA analysis. It was super cool. So we bring in people like that to talk to young people, student birders. So when I say student 13 through college, is the age range. And we sold out the last time um, with kids coming from 14 different states. So it's a one-day event, although we will probably be adding something called Frontiers Field Institutes where we may have opportunities for students to go out into the field with Mm -hmm. biologists or with people who say do something with MODIS towers or perhaps in a... a, um, a museum or or something like this. So stay tuned to that. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll be launching more information. It's Frontiers and Ornithology. Com. We are a 501c3 nonprofit nice. as well. So we're looking for sponsors. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if any of your Put listeners want to support yeah. <laughs> young birders uh, and how they can make a difference in conservation moving forward, this is one way you can do it by helping sponsor a kid. So that's really cool. And I especially like the idea that there are so many different ways to contribute to birds and bird conservation and birding, the birding community, even ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Like I, if you had told me 15 years ago that I'd be hosting a podcast about birds, I would have never 
thought that that was possible. I mean, that was podcasting was barely a thing. Sometimes the thing that you end up doing is a thing that doesn't even exist yet. And, mm. and uh, our paths into the birding world are varied and, you know, they're not all academia. There are lots of kind of weird ways to get into birding and, and make an impact. And, and oh, I think letting people know that is, is so valuable because you, you never know how you're going to be able to contribute. That's right. And everybody has something, a gift to give, you know, and you may not think it fits into birding, but it, it can be a piece of that big puzzle yeah. that makes a difference for not only birders and people who love birds, but also the birds themselves. Yeah. So what is your, what is your favorite thing about working a bird camp, be it Camp Delaware or, or Hog Island? I mean, I just love being around a community of other people that love birds. Yeah, I mean, for sure. <laughs> that, you know, and I learn so much from my campers um, mm-hmm. each year. I mean, they, they teach all of us instructors uh, so much about birds because like you were saying before, they see things that I might not see. Mm-hmm. Um, they teach me how to see and, and, have a rejuvenation in my appreciation of certain common species, yeah, no <laughs> you know, that maybe that it's they're seeing for the first time or they recognize something different about those birds. So it's just that sense of community um, and just getting to know some really great people. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You were on the ABA's Recording Standards and Ethics Committee when they made a big change to the ABA's Code of Birding Ethics. If, if listeners are not familiar with the, with the RSEC, it's basically the the folks that I don't know, they sort of make the rules, they sort of make the birding rules that the AVA abides by, you know, in conjunction with like the checklist committee, which approves or, or not approves the birds. Um, anyway, you know, the, the code of birding ethics has always been such a big part of the way that the ABA has influenced the birding community in North America uh, and around the world. A lot of people have kind of taken the code of birding ethics and modified it for their own parts of the parts of the continent or parts of the world. Um, what was your first encounter with birding ethics and how has your view changed over the years that you've been birding? Hmm, That's a great question. Yeah. So, um, well, with birding ethics, I think it comes into playback, you Mm -hmm. know, um, and, and what that means and how we use it Mm -hmm. and when to use it and when not to use it. And everybody has a different philosophy on it. Um, you know, whether to use it, to not, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that was my first real awareness of birding ethics. Um, you know, as a, and and how we think about that, and how we interact with birds, and how does that impact the birds themselves? Mm-hmm. You know, because we are observers, um, either with our eyes or our ears, and and how does that change uh, the way the bird? is um, interacting with its world, its habitat. And so mm-hmm. that was my first awareness of thinking about ethics in birding. Um, and so, and this obviously is a topic that <laughs> you can take a deep dive into and <laughs> have some really, um, yeah. you know, interesting conversations with other people. And, and sometimes it can be sticky, but, you know, I like hearing all sides um, of perspectives on this, um, you know, and that's something that we carefully looked at when we were working on the revision of the Code of Birding Ethics. It's interesting that you bring up playback um, because that has in the past been, been kind of a hot topic. Since you all made the Code of Birding Ethics updates that in, you know, specifically included playback. I mean, I, re- I recall that being a big thing that you were wrestling with. Um, I have noticed a lot more people being sort of aware of other birders when they're using playback. So before before you guys did the change, I um, 
I, people would just kind of pull out a, a recorder and start blasting playback into the woods. And ever since then, like I have noticed everyone asking, I mean, that's like the least you can do when you're dealing with playback in a group of people like ask, is this group okay with using playback? Can I, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to get, and I mean, that's, that's, I mean, what the ethics are essentially like, don't be a jerk. And then that's like the very basic of not being a jerk. And if someone says, no, I'm not comfortable with that, then you don't do it. But most of the time people are pretty comfortable with that, with limited use of playback. And I, I personally have noticed more people asking, not just here in the United States, um, but when I've traveled in the tropics as well, the guides have been, is it okay if I use playback here? Yes or no. Um, even that feels like a real fundamental change in the way people approach not just birds, but birders mm. and, you know, finding that comfort zone and, and doing what is ethically right for both the wildlife and for the people around you. Mm-hmm. So that's been neat to see. Yeah, I think that is kind of a change that we're seeing. Um, People are just becoming more aware of other birders and Mm -hmm. people's ideas and and sensitive to that. I think we need to be sensitive to other people's opinions, which may be different than ours. Um, And every time you ask a group of people or other birders, you're teaching them. This is part of that education piece and something and you're, you're giving them a gift because then they learn that, you know, that this is a good practice, best practices in birding is to ask your group. And also in addition to asking, um, like, also offering information on when you will and will not right. use playback, like, yeah. you know, when it's not good practice to use playback during the nesting season or right. close to a nest or, you know, et cetera. Incessantly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so this is, you know, honestly, I think a lot of people who um, come into birding, they they really don't know about the ethics. And I mm-hmm. think particularly photography, um, this is, is um, something that people just don't know. They're not trying to be intentionally nefarious or bad. Right. I mean, sometimes Sometimes people just don't know because they've never been taught. So the more of us that share this message, that talk about this um, and and ask these questions, the better for everybody, including and especially the birds. Yeah. Is birding ethics a topic that you discuss at your birding camps when you're running them? Absolutely. Yes. I think it's really important. I think it's a conversation we need to be having more often. You know, there are a lot more birders out there. There's a lot more pressure for birds to survive due to smaller habitat and spaces. And we need to do everything that we can as birders to be mindful of uh, how we interact with the world around us, and and particularly with regard to birds and also to um, other birders. So I think it's really an important conversation to continue. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to tie this back to our original conversation too. Do you think birding ethics plays into ornotherapy as well because we're talk we're you know we're we're talking about birding as as therapy as wellness. Mm-hmm. Um the last thing you need is extra stress from the other birders around you or constant worrying about the welfare of the birds. This stuff all sort of plays into that as well. You know, we're 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 trying to create a community, create an environment in which you know, birding can continue to be this wellness activity that is beneficial to everybody involved, all the stakeholders, not just the human ones. Um, yeah, it, it all seems to all seems to work together. Yeah, it sure does. And I feel like when we're connecting the two dots of, of being mindful as a birder, like practicing ornotherapy, as I'd mm-hmm. like to say, and also best practices in birding, um, you know, oftentimes um, we're, our goal here is to slow down and be more intentional, right, as, mm-hmm. as part of self-care. Um, but also um, takes the edge off of some of the eco uh, anxiety that mm-hmm. we might feel, like we're not yeah. doing something good for the ecosystem. We're 
we're kind of detrimental as human species. Yeah. Um, and I think there's something to be said for these two things intersecting um, ethics, you know, being uh, using best practices and also being mindful in the moment in that we are doing something positive for the, the natural world when we are birding. And when those two pieces intersect, you know, I think that it provides, I don't know about for other people, but certainly for me, it makes me more hopeful, yeah. you know, because we keep hearing about all these negative things about, you know, 3 billion birds lost or, yeah. you know, the damage we're doing as a human species. But these are ways we can contribute and give back is by being, you know, a more mindful birder in every sense of that word. Holly Marker is the director of the EAP's Camp Delaware and author of Ornotherapy, an ABA award recipient. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck putting together Camp Delaware 2023 and the uh, in the in the symposium that you have later this fall. You know, congratulations on the on the award. Well deserved again. And um, this was a this was a really fun conversation. <laughs> Thanks so much, Nate. It was really fun. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including our magazines, discounts to partners like Beautyo Books, Princeton University Press, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and more. You can find out how to do that at aba.org slash join. I have some shout outs to make this week too. Scott Dresser of Boxborough, Massachusetts, Susan Goods of London, Ontario, Tiffany Highland of Swanton, Ohio, Jennifer Kuhn of Columbus, Ohio, Mark Macaluso of Wheaton, Illinois, Jamie Nelesny of New Brighton, Minnesota. Dean Steger and family of Medfield, Massachusetts, and Sarah Spotton of Longmont, Colorado, whose name helpfully describes what she's doing when she, she goes birding. Thank you so much for joining the ABA this week and noting this podcast as a reason for doing so. Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who wonders if the arrow storks who didn't make it back to Germany can instead be referred to as fail storks. Technical production is by John Lowry, who wonders if the Fielstorch could also be a German version of the dish chicken and rice, or rather, arrows con pollo. Additional help with social media comes to George Munoz, who immediately commissioned a piece of jewelry featuring the Fielstorch because he wanted a neck-laced necklace. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association, but on Twitter we are at ABA. I wonder if the spear from the stork's neck could be repurposed into a handle for one of those tiki torches people put in their yards in the summer so you could have a field storch steel torch. Maybe not. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.